Hi, Paul Scanlon here. Thanks for taking the time to click on my podcast. I want to spend time focusing on my primary passions of leadership, personal development, communication, growing big people, and I hope that these podcasts really help and add value to your life and to your journey. Thanks for tuning in. Luke 7, verse 1 to 10. We're going to spend a few minutes in this beautiful, fascinating story, this encounter Jesus had with this centurion. Jesus entered Capernaum there, a centurion's servant whom his master valued highly was sick and about to die. The centurion heard about Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation, has built our synagogue. And so Jesus went with them. He was on his way to the house when the centurion sent friends to say, Lord, don't trouble yourself for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go and he goes, and that one, come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Would we say amazed? Amazed. I think whatever is capable of amazing Jesus is worthy of closer investigation just in case we could amaze him again by a similar behavior that made him be amazed 2,000 years ago. I think the frequency with which God is amazed is few and far between in church history because him being amazed is far more to do with us than it is to do with him. Turning to the crowd following him, he said, I have not found such great faith even in Israel than the men who had been sent return home to find the servant well. The title for this message, and I work very hard on my title so that if you forget me and forget today, the title will stick in your mind years from now. I meet people around the world all the time that refer to a message I did, and it goes back 30 years when I think about the message they're thinking about, and they remember it by a title. A good title gathers up the concept, like a good title of a book or a movie. It stays in your mind, and when you mention the title, the whole idea is gathered up in the title. A title is an idea's first impression, so it needs to be a good one. I think a lot of preachers are lazy about their titles. I say to pastors around the world in my communication masterclass that I do, what are you teaching at the moment? Uh, I'm teaching on faith. Uh, What's it called? Uh, Faith. (laughs) What did you teach last Sunday? Uh, Faith part three. (laughs) Highly forgettable. So working on titles, I think, is an act of service to people that are tracking with us and want something memorable to go home with. So this title is called The Centurion Factor. The Centurion Factor. You can photograph the screen. No one will take your phone off you. You can photograph the screen if you can't remember it. And the screen and the title helps you visual learners to engage with me a little bit more than you audio learners. Now you have an image as well as a title, The Centurion Factor. Because I invented this term because I can. You can too. If there's something in your life you can't figure out, invent a term. Everybody's doing it. It'll go viral probably. (laughs) Because I think this centurion in this story deserves his own factor, deserves his own um, unique contribution to our understanding of faith because that's the kind of faith I think he had. And I want to explain to you a little bit today Because something game-changing and fascinating is going on here. And the scenario is, as we just read, here is a centurion 
that by definition means he's a powerful individual in society. He is a military commander, so he's very connected in terms of his military power. He's also very wealthy because we just heard the elders who he reached to of the synagogue to approach Jesus on his behalf. They said to Jesus, he's a good guy, so much so he even financed our church building. He financed our synagogue. So he is a wealthy individual and he's very powerful and well-connected, but he has a problem none of that can fix, a sick staff member. And subheadings in the Bible are often misleading because the subheading here is the centurion's servant. But as we just read, it's the least person it's about is the servant. We know nothing about the servant. Was the servant with him a long time? Was the servant male or female? Was the servant ill with something we could have known more about? What was the recovery like? And afterwards, we know all of that and more about other people Jesus helped. So this is not about the servant. It's about the centurion. There's something going on here. The miracle actually here, the miracle was not actually the healing of the servant. The miracle here was something much more significant going on behind the scenes. And so I want to take you for a few moments into the subplot of what's going on here. I think what makes a movie outstanding and separates it out from an average movie is not the plot, it's the subplot. <laughs> what makes your life interesting is not the plot we can see, but the subplot we cannot see. What also makes your life agonizing at times is that your head is involved in the plot you can see, but your heart is involved in the subplot you cannot see. That often makes living very difficult because you know something bigger is going on, but destiny is impossible to understand now or looking forward. Destiny only reveals itself retrospectively, which is a very bad thing about destiny. <laughs> you look back and think, ah, oh, now I know what that was five years ago, but at the time... So this subplot here is fascinating to me because this centurion connects to these elders he knows who he knows know Jesus. And he knows Jesus helps with people like this, his situation. And money and wealth and power couldn't fix this terminal illness that his servant had. So Jesus sets off to this man's house. We don't know how long the walk was. The train link hadn't been built yet. Nor could you grab an Uber to get there quicker. So everywhere was walking. So he sets off to this man's house, perhaps a couple of hours journey. I don't know, but he's walking to this man's house because he's going, as the elders probably said, he will come to your house. This is how this goes down. And he lay hands on the staff member, the servant, and the miracle then happens. So we're going to persuade him to come to your house. And the centurion's like, whatever, this is your domain, not mine. So cool, just get him here as quick as you can, I guess was the conversation. Let me just say, while I explain and go over the narrative to you again, let me just say this so that you stay in this space with me. You do know, don't you, people in the Bible did not know they were in the Bible. You need to know people in the Bible were like you in this room today. Stuff's happening in real time. They weren't doing things so that preachers had good material 2,000 years on. They're not acting out a drama that was purely fodder for great preaching later. These people were in real time, like you are today, not knowing how a thing will turn out, not knowing whether Jesus will be too late, not knowing whether your, your, your sickness will get healed or not, whether your breakthrough will come or not in time. They were living in real time, and I've got to keep reminding you of that as we're on this piece of ground, we're doing this journey with Jesus, we're involved in this conversation to appreciate it. 
And so Jesus is going to this man's house. That's plan A. Then the centurion, who I imagine was sat at home, thinking through what is set in motion, he's already self-conscious. I'm quite embarrassed about the idea of wasting Jesus' time, perhaps, of having someone of Jesus' reputation in his home. He was already uncomfortable about that as we gathered. I wasn't worthy to come to you in the first place, is what he sends in the second message. He's sitting home thinking, I set in motion this idea, but I think I've got a better idea. The better idea was, he thought, like we often do about stuff. I think Jesus is like me, he thinks, in terms of, you know, being a person of authority and under authority. From what I hear about him, he has a team and a staff and he has people that he's leading like I do. And from what I hear of him, he's a man under the authority of this God that he worships and the Jewish elders have probably told him much about that. So he says to himself, I am in charge of people and people are in charge of me. So when I tell people to do stuff, go there and come here, they do that. When I am told by those over me, do this and do that, I have to do it. Even though it comes in the form of a letter, the person that sent the letter perhaps from Roman military high command, send a seal on the bottom of it. And the seal, the Roman seal, was as good as the person's presence in the room, but didn't require the person's presence in the room. So he's figuring out, it's a very military, very military black and white idea of authority, but enough for him to understand why the first plan could be upgraded for a new one. Because he said to himself, if... If I tell people to do things and they do it, and I don't need to go with them to make sure they do it, I don't think Jesus needs to come to my house to make sure what he wants to happen, happens. I don't think for authority and power to work, it needs physical presence. Because those that command me are not in the room, and those who I command, I am not in the room when they carry out my orders. So I think Jesus can stay where he is and send his word so, so, so the word can behave like a person can, is what he's figuring out. Genius. So he sends this second message and this, the, the, the delegation say to Jesus, this is the new idea. So don't come, just send your word. So what's amazing, why it's worthy of being called amazing, why Jesus is in amazement is not just because of who's asking for help, which was amazing, this outsider to the church, this not only Gentile, but Roman military commander, and the Jews hated the Gentiles, hated the Gentiles and the Romans. So not as amazing that who's asking, but what he's asking for, and now how he wants to change how it goes down. What's amazing is that up till this time, no one knew that this was even possible to be asked for. Because up till this time, Jesus has never healed anyone without being physically present in the same room, which is what he was going to do this time. So no one knew anybody could get healed without him being there. No one knew it was an option. So he's asking for something that this Roman centurion, he has no precedence for other than his own reference point in his own world. You can imagine the disciples thinking, watch Jesus put this guy straight when he tells Jesus how to do his thing. You know, Jesus is going to say, please, you're delaying me. I've got to get there quickly. It's a crisis situation. Please don't tell me how to do my job. If you know anything about the disciples, you know they're very capable of that kind of conversation. As are all of us, especially when the idea to do something better comes from someone outside of our group. 
There are many people outside the church that have brilliant ideas of how we can do things better. And thank God we're building churches around the world, some of us, where we're open to that idea. We know they'll never darken the door of a church, and that's okay. But we know God put them in our space for some insight, some wisdom, some idea, some way of seeing and doing a thing that means that we save a lot of time and money in doing it because they offered something. And Jesus was so wide open to that by this suggestion. And the guy says, just send your words. So first of all, it's who's asking, shocking. The suggestion is shocking because there's no precedent for it. What's also surprising and shocking to me as I, as I sit still in this story to figure out the nuances of what's going on as to why it would result in being said that he was amazed is that the only person who knew he didn't need to go to this man's house was Jesus. But he didn't say anything. This bothers me a lot about God. It does. It bothers me. It strikes me as irresponsible, certainly poor parenting. For you to know that there's a better way, an easier way to get something done and not tell that to your children. For you to know there is a, a quicker, more efficient way, a more time-saving way to get things done and not say anything strikes me as, as odd. I had no theology for this kind of God for many years. But I understand in this scenario what's amazing is not only that it was an unprecedented request, but Jesus always knew it was an option. But he was going to go to the man's house anyway. And I want to introduce you, if that's what I'm doing today, to the idea that God is open to doing something your way. It doesn't need to be his way. I think our Christianity for, for a long time has been built on the idea that, that we just kind of do what God tells us, that obedience is to do with God's going God's to gonna do it his way and, you know, have your way, Lord. And we sing these songs and these things, have your way, Lord. And sometimes God's saying, well, I will because I want to get a good result for everybody, but I'm open to ideas. That God is your friend. He's not your dictator. He's not your controller, that God is very open to suggestions from us because this thing called Christianity operates according to your faith, not according to his ability. And if your faith cannot access the range of his abilities, then he'll keep coming to your house. And it concerned me years ago that I wonder often in my own life and our church's lives through the generations how many roads we're making Jesus walk down that he does not need to for our sake? Because the centurion, the centurion would have been offended and angry if Jesus had said, go and tell him I won't come, I'll send a word. And that revelation, that idea was not part of the centurion's understanding. He would have been offended that it looks like he doesn't care. Is he too busy? Am I not important enough? And so he would have struggled because the idea didn't come the centurion's way. Jesus would not have put it on him. So the man's saying, come to my house, is what Jesus thinks he's saying. That's what the elders said. But then he said, don't come, just send a word. And so centurion fact of faith is the kind of faith that gets God to do stuff that no one knew God could do. And this faith is available to every single one of you every day of your Christian life. 
And if no one tells us this, I think we just keep getting God to walk down roads through history that he doesn't need to, but he will if we don't ask him to do it a different way. And it's still a good outcome. Someone still gets helped and healed. But if you study church history, and I have and still do, where you find unusual, amazing moves of God, let's use that word because it's part of our common vocabulary, unusual activities of God in the earth, at its core, you will find something that I now call centurion fact of faith, that got God to do something that no one believed God could do or would do, and that generation of the church does something unprecedented when no one knew it was possible, but at its core, someone had the audacity Someone had the naivety, someone had the cheek, the rudeness, the presumption, because that's often what it's called at the time. No move of God is called that as it happens. It's often called that retrospectively, but no one wants to call something God as it happens in case it's a threat to my version of God. If God's doing something in your life and it's not what he's doing in my life and it looks and sounds different to how I've told myself God does things, if God's working off script, off my script, if God's operating outside of my permissions that I give him, <laughs> then I'm going to say, that can't be God, that's not God. And God just loves for you to say that to him. And so this is a game-changing situation because something unprecedented just happened. It came from an outsider to suggest it. Jesus knew he could do it but didn't say anything. A lot of stuff going on here. It, it reminds me of an old, a friend of mine that I had years ago called Bill. And Bill is the kind of person, and you ever had someone in your life like this? You've known them for years, okay? So you kind of know all about them, you think. And them, you. Then they do something, and you're like, what? I didn't know you could play the piano. You go through a shopping mall or, or someone and they see a pen and they sit down and play Beethoven. You've known them 10 years. You're like, what? This is Bill. So Bill and I were at the university campus in our city years ago when I was pastoring, sat in a coffee shop talking about reaching the students. And as we got up to leave the coffee shop, about you know, 10 or so, a dozen students came in that were Chinese that had just come to our city. I suppose, for a degree program. As we're leaving, Bill goes over to these Chinese kids and starts speaking to them in fluent freaking Chinese. <laughs> I use freaking so that I can still stay in touch myself with how shocking it was. It's still shocking as I tell the story now. Fluent freaking Chinese. Bill, Bill. I know there's no such thing as speaking Chinese. I know it's Mandarin and Cantonese. But back then, I didn't know that. And it's better for the story anyway. <laughs> so don't be writing me. I know. So I'm like, what? What? What the? Bill's talking. And I don't mean, in case you're thinking, you mean like a few words to connect with the kids. No. I mean fluent freaking Chinese. <laughs> Bill. In case you're thinking, there must have been a clue. Okay, here's how, here's how lacking in clues this is. I live in Yorkshire. Think, think of the Shire. Think of hobbits. Okay. That's Bill. Now ask yourself, how Chinese is that image? Huh? That's my point. 
So I wasn't missing something. You think, well, you must have known, you know, Bill looked a bit Chinese. He had Chinese friends. He liked Chinese takeout food. Um, no, no, no clue. So I'm outside the cafe waiting for Bill to give him it with both barrels. You ever, be, you ever been not just shocked, but upset shocked? Like you've been holding out on me. So Bill comes out and I'm ready. I'm like, Bill, what? What just happened? What? You, you went to those kids. You just spoke to them in fluent freaking Chinese. I've known you for 12 years. How can, how can I not know? Bill, seriously, you, you, you're kidding me. How, how come you never told me? You never told me. You speak Chinese. You never told moi, me, your friend. Why not? Bill, in his cool, calm, annoying way, by the way, some of you have that superpower, just said to me, because you never asked. <laughs> that was it. Bill was done. That was it. That was his answer. He didn't go on to explain. Just said, you never asked. To which I said, why would I have asked? <laughs> I tell you that to tell you this, that God... He's like Bill. And you need to know this about God. The church has missed this for generations, I think, and I did too. That God speaks Chinese. <laughs> but, 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 don't be clapping, I haven't got time. But, he won't tell you. You have to get him to do it. You have to get him not to come to your house. You have to get him to send a word instead of showing up. You have to get him to do something that's your idea, not his. Otherwise, he'll just come to your house. And it's still a good outcome. But I get this sense of watching God throughout the ages that God is aching and longing to do it differently. That he's wanting a human to say, why don't we do this, God, instead of that, only to find God saying, cool, let's do that instead then. Because this, 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 this centurion fact of faith is kind of human hijacking. It's human interruption of divine intent. I'm going to come to your house. Well, now I'm not. We're going to do it this way instead. Give me another example. Um, who knew the sun could be made to stand still by a man asking for that to happen? What? Everybody go, that you got to read your Bible and go what remember now Joseph doesn't know he's in the Bible uh, Joshua doesn't know he's in the Bible I'm trying to give a good preaching story later it's just a guy like somebody you with today out in town I mean we do this all the time in England sun stands still but it doesn't because we have real winter hello you should have that word taken off you winter it's kind of on my it's like a false description of what's going on it's like summer for me here. I'm like, no, sh I'm like, so, so he's having a bad time. Joshua is in a battle, an everyday military situation, and they're winning, but it's getting dark. He needs more daylight, a practical problem. Now, if it had finished with the enemy going into the cover of night, using the advantage of darkness to escape, live to fight another day, that would have been the narrative, would have turned the page, nothing new to see here. That's okay, no problem. But instead, something happened that day. And Joshua had this, I don't know what happened. What needs to happen in your head to come up with that? 
And Joshua looks at the sun and shouts at it to stand still. I wouldn't want to have been on his team. I'd think, you know, Pastor Brian needs a sabbatical. <laughs> He's shouting at the sun. He's talking to the weather. I mean, whoo. I know Joshua's under pressure. I know it's been a tough day. But the generals would say, well, I just heard him shout to the sun. Perhaps is what went on because they didn't know they're in the Bible. It's just a normal thing, but very weird what happened. And clearly, he said, sun, stand still. This was not God's idea, although God knew he could do it, but didn't say anything. So Joshua got God to speak Chinese that day because God said, cool, I can do that. Boom, you never asked, so I didn't do it. But God knew he could do it. But God would have let the battle end with the enemy escaping, living to fight another day. God would allow that to happen until someone said, I need more daylight. Now, what's even more fascinating to me than that is that we all know, don't we children, that the sun doesn't move. When I say that, people always look like you're looking, but you didn't know that. Sun doesn't move. So the earth moves around the sun. So he's asking for something far more complex than just one planet stopping still. He's asking the whole universal planetary alignment, orbital alignment to be interrupted. Because if you slow down the earth, so it stays in sunlight longer, if you slow down the earth, you've got to slow them all down as far as Pluto. So Joshua's saying, can you interrupt the whole universe galactic orbital schedule so I can kill a few more bad guys. <laughs> you think God would go, hang on a minute. This is a massive, massive, ridiculous request for a small advantage. Get real. Can you scale it down? Why would I interrupt the universe to kill a few more bad guys? Is not what God said to him. God will never judge you for reaching. God will never patronize you for reaching. God loves it like a parent does with their kids when they reach. It may be a failed attempt. It may have turned out with a bad outcome, but you've got to celebrate this heart, which is the DNA of this church. You've got to celebrate this, have a go. Why not us? Why not now? Why not here? Why not some unprecedented centurion fact of faith in the offering next week? The $3 million from someone is a historical history-making, precedent-setting, brilliant thing that happened. But I, I wonder if God is saying, I want in that area too in life to be amazed. And I've got to tell you, $3 million is amazing, but so is three for some of you. Jesus was amazed at a woman that gave a penny. Because God's not interested so much in the amount. He's interested in the cost. Amounts can be measured, but costs cannot. No one can tell anyone how much that cost you to give that. And that's what God sees. God sees the cost, the sacrifice, as Brian said, that's involved in any amount that we give. <laughs> Sun, stand still. Okay, let's do that then. Hmm. What about the sick being healed in Peter's shadow? What? This was not God's idea, nor Peter's idea. They just borrowed his shadow. And sick and desperate people had an idea to shuffle their way into his shadow. And God clearly went, okay, I can hear you in the shadow. Cool. Never been done before. No precedent for it. 
Let's do that then. What about sick people healed because someone took a handkerchief from a sick person who couldn't get to see Paul and said, will you lay hands on a handkerchief? You know, we, we, we've, we better franchise out of that stuff, but, and that's not the intention of these. These are not in Scripture so that we build a movement on it. There's simply a heads up. Heads up. God can do stuff. Walking on water. What the heck's that about? What a waste of time. Seriously. Who's been helped? Who's been healed? Who's been saved and delivered? Nobody's been helped. I've come to the conclusion, walking on water is literally God showing off. It's like, I can do stuff. What about a fish ATM? Uh-huh. We need money to pay the taxes. Ah, uh, you know what? Go catch a fish. It'll have money in its mouth. What? A fish ATM. A fish cash machine. We should all find out where they swim. How elaborate. How fancy. How unnecessary is that way to get money? We could just do it a normal way, Jesus. And money in a fish's mouth. And sick healed in the shadow. And handkerchiefs been carried to the sick. And sun standing still. And send a word and don't come to my house. Is God saying to you, church, I want to speak Chinese more often. But you need to get me to do it. Because if you don't ask, you won't see it in your life and in our generation. And we need more of it. Let's stand together. Come on, time's gone. Well, thank you so much again, you guys, for... You love and you welcome. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for these beautiful humans here, all across this room, here with all of our stories, all the plots and subplots and twists and turns of our lives that have brought us to this moment. We thank you today that you are forensically involved in the shadows of our lives, that when we think you have most abandoned us, if we could dust our lives for your fingerprints, we'd find you all over us. You'd never left us or forsaken us. And so in our hearts today, we sit up and lift our chin towards the coming weeks and months in the second half of this year where everything is still to play for. And I pray, Lord, there'll be the beginnings of experimentation and stepping out in even small ways and large ways to get you to speak Chinese. That we might amaze you again. That it might be said of our personal lives and our corporate lives. Jesus was amazed because we got you to do something that came out of our hearts, not just yours. I pray for innovation, improvisation, new ways of doing old things creative voices, zero gravity mentalities that get you in our generation to do something amongst us that can only be described as simply amazing. In Jesus' name. Love you guys. Thanks for listening today. Thank you. Hey guys, just want to let you know about a resource that I'm making available to everyone called Aging Well. It is a video series, almost 11 hours in length, over 60 videos and it covers aging well in five areas aging well physically mentally emotionally relationally and generationally 
it has a ebook that goes with it it also has a Q&A and workbook that comes with it i think you guys are going to find a real addition to your personal growth investment i hope you'll enjoy it you're going to find it at gbpacademy.com